I think, I think Jared did a good job with all those Hebrew names, don't you? I didn't do that on purpose, but... You know, I really have to um, hand it to the prophet Jeremiah. I think he deserves a lot of credit. Think about this. Jeremiah, in his entire ministry, only had one follower. And that was his scribe named Baruch. He never convinced anybody to follow God. His own family, including his father, wanted to kill him. Unlike the prophet Isaiah, who had a class about him, an elegance, he was, he was very comfortable in the king's courts. Jeremiah probably looked like a crazy man. Jeremiah did things that were socially embarrassing. He spoke to important people in not-so-appropriate ways. In his writings, we find him completely covered in mud. We see him being insensitive to other people, and he was incredibly emotional. His emotions were all over the place. So when we look at Jeremiah, in the eyes of the world, he was, he was a complete failure as a prophet. Yet, people had a respect for him. They feared him a little bit because he was so unpredictable. But very few people paid close attention to what he had to say. Yet of all the prophets that we see in the Old Testament, I think it's Jeremiah that I respect the most. Because he never gave up. He never gave up. Even in the midst of utter failure, what it looked like, he had no doubt that God had called him from before he was even born to speak truth to people. And he was faithful to do it, even if the truth that he offered offended just about everybody. If you read the book of Jeremiah, it's not a real happy book. He even offended people who could have had him killed, including the king. And that's where we find Jeremiah today. What Jared just read to us is one of the most powerful messages in the Bible because it has a profound message for our world today. The story actually begins in the first few verses of chapter 36. If you have your Bible, turn with me, push your screen, swipe your screen, however you get your Bible these days. Listen to this, Jeremiah chapter 36. Uh, this is the first few verses here. In the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what God told Jeremiah. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations. From the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today, it may be that when the house of Judah hears of all of the disasters I intend to do to them, all of them may turn from their evil ways so that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. See, God's people had strayed in their commitment to him. They had just seen a spiritual revival of sorts under King Josiah. Remember King Josiah? We know him as the boy king. When he was eight years old, he became king, and he served God faithfully, rediscovered God's word for the people. But Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, was anything but faithful to God. 
See, as, as the leader goes, so goes the people. A pagan king will model a pagan lifestyle to the people who will then live a pagan lifestyle because that's what the king's doing. And that's what happened. So Jeremiah dictates to his scribe Baruch. Remember Baruch, he's the only one who ever followed Jeremiah. He dictates to him much of what we know of as the book of Jeremiah up to this point. And since Jeremiah was scared to be out in the open during this time because people were, like he, he, had, he, he had offended some people and they wanted to kill him. He had Baruch, poor Baruch, go into the temple square, open the scroll, and start reading. That's not a nice way to treat the only follower you have, is it? I'm about to slam everybody, so I want you to go out there in the square and read it yourself, Baruch. I'm going to stay hidden. Thanks a lot, Jeremiah. So Baruch does it. He goes out to the temple. Everybody's there. And he opens up his scroll, and he starts reading this scroll. And it's like condemnation upon the people. Y'all are a bunch of sinners, and you're going to be destroyed unless you turn back to God. Well, his reading in the public square got the attention of some supervisors. So they contacted their superiors and said, we've got a problem. So the temple administrators called Baruch into their office. Oh boy, he got called to the office. And they say, Baruch, these are tough words. Where'd you get them? Did you write these? Did Jeremiah write these? And I love Baruch's response because it's a classic response from a detailed, objective scribe. This is how he answered. He said, Jeremiah dictated them to to me word by word, and I wrote down his words with ink on this scroll. Well, that's detailed and concise, isn't it? Well, when they heard this, they told Baruch, dude, you've got to go hide because people are going to want to kill you. So go hide. So Baruch leaves, he goes, and he hides. And they immediately go and tell the king about the contents of the scroll and what had happened. They didn't want word to get to the king before they had a chance to tell him. So the king summoned one of his attendants, a man named Jehudi. Isn't that a hilarious name? Jehudi. Say that. Jehudi. It actually means Jew in Hebrew. It's just a fun name. That's just a fun name. Well, anyway, he says, Jehudi, I want you to read this scroll from Jeremiah. Now, if we thought Baruch was a poor dude for having to go into the temple courts and read this out loud, how would you like to be the one to read these words to the king? You've heard the phrase, don't kill the messenger. Well, the king was about to hear condemnation after condemnation in the voice of Jehudi, not in the voice of Jeremiah. So, the Bible tells us it was autumn, and in the king's palace... It was too expensive to heat and cool the entire thing. So there was, there was a winter place and then there was a, a, a summer place. He was in the winter place where they had heat. And he's sitting by the fireplace to keep warm. And as Jehudi would finish a few columns of text, I mean, he opened the scroll and he was reading it, the king would take out a knife and he would cut out the section from the scroll 
and he'd toss it into the fire pit. And this went on and on until the entire scroll had been cut up and thrown into the fire pit. And the Bible says that, I mean, that, that the, the attendants were so apart from God that this didn't even bother them. And when the whole scroll had been burned up, he ordered Baruch and Jeremiah to be arrested and executed. That's not the end of the story. See, in some mysterious way, God had hidden Baruch. He found a really good hiding place, and he escaped. And when he made it back to Jeremiah, God had already given Jeremiah a message. Jerry, when Baruch gets back, we've got to do it again. Poor Baruch, his hand's got to be getting sore. Write it all down again. Get another scroll, dictate it to him again. Only this time, we're going to have even harsher words for that king. If he thought that was bad, wait till he see what's coming now. I mean, it's hard to imagine someone taking the word of God, which we have in a form like this, in a book, cutting it up and throwing it into a fire. That's just troubling to me when I think about See, King Jehoiakim's father was the faithful King Josiah. He had reestablished God's word in the kingdom, turned the nation to Yahweh and not to the pagan gods. What a difference one generation can make. A father preserved God's word, but his son destroyed it. Just like that. Y'all know I like to ask the question, why? That's one of my favorite questions because I think it gets to the real core of something. So why in the world did King Jehoiakim cut up and burn God's word? Why would he do this? Well, maybe, maybe he was annoyed with Jeremiah. You know, there's, there's always that one person who spoils everybody's fun. Have you ever known somebody like that? There's that one person who doesn't go along with the plan. we got a great plan, and then one person says, well, wait a second. It's like, oh. There's that one person who finds a reason why it's not going to work. Of course, there's no one like that at Centenary. I almost want to look at the ceiling so you don't think I'm talking about you. But that certainly describes Jeremiah. That's the way he was. That was his reputation. You'd see him coming and say, oh no, here comes Jeremiah, the party's over. So maybe that's why the king didn't want to hear this. Oh man, not another letter from Jeremiah. Get rid of it. Junk mail. Burn it up. I'm tired of hearing from this guy. He's all doom and gloom. Yet I think there's a deeper reason why King Jehoiakim cut up and burned the scroll. See, I think he didn't like what it said, and he wanted to destroy it. See, by cutting it up, he wanted to remove the parts of it that he didn't like. 
No, like Thomas Jefferson in his, in his version of the Bible, he removed all the miracles because he didn't believe in miracles. Miracles could never exist. So in his version of the Bible, there's no miracles. It was real short. But you know, we do the same thing today. If we're honest, we'll admit it. If we read a part of the Bible that we don't like, we'll just snip it out and keep reading. If we read a passage of the Bible that contradicts how we're living our lives, we ignore it and we look for the parts that affirm us and make us feel good about ourselves. If we read the Bible and it teaches us that God created people to live a certain way or that God wants us to believe certain things that may not be politically correct, we pretend that they're not really there. See, increasingly we're living in a culture that not only threatens Christians to ignore parts of the Bible, but we're living in a culture in which they want the Bible to be burned away so they don't have to be convicted or bothered by it. See, God loves us so deeply that in the Bible, he says things to us that sometimes challenge us. That's a good thing. Sometimes we read the Bible and we get convicted. Maybe a little bit of guilt. See, there's good guilt and there's bad guilt. If good guilt leads us to repentance and asking God for forgiveness, that's good. See, if God didn't love us, he'd just, the Bible would just be all about what we wanted to see. You're wonderful and everything you do is wonderful. That's not how you love somebody, just to tell them that. That's the worst thing we can do for somebody. Just tell them what they want to hear all the time. How's that going to help them? If you were here last Sunday, Dr. Tim Tennant, president of Asbury Seminary, offered us a powerful sermon. And in his sermon, he, he reminded us that the core essential belief that every Christian must believe in order to rightfully be called a Christian is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He used Paul's letter to, to remind us. Yet in Dr. Tennant's world in higher education, the reality is that there are some theological seminaries that teach that the resurrection of Jesus isn't necessary. All that matters is his message. See, even though we read in the Bible that Jesus is saying that we need to make the kingdom of God our primary concern, seek first the kingdom of God, sometimes we want to cut around that and throw it in the fire because church events might interfere with other things on our calendars. Even though Paul writes that when it comes to faith, hope, and love, that love is the greatest, some of us are only about what we think is best and what we want. And that's the opposite of love. So we just cut around that part in the Bible and throw it in the fire. See, even in the church today, 
We're taking scissors. We're cutting out passages of the Bible that don't match our views or opinions. And we throw it in the fire. And we wonder why our lives are so messed up. See, King Jehoiakim thought that by destroying God's word, he could get rid of God's word. Well, the word of God might be abandoned. It might be ignored. It might be explained away. It might be misinterpreted. The word of God might even be cut up and thrown into a fire pit. But remember what God said to Jeremiah. Son, get another copy ready. We're going to take it to him again. Cultures change. Opinions change. Morals change like trends in fashion. Denominations, pastors, even church members might openly defy the very Bible they've pledged to uphold. But God's word can't be consumed in a silly old fire. It's going to stand the test of time. It's going to survive any criticism. See, God gave us the Bible not to condemn us, but to save us from ourselves. That's why he sent Jesus, God himself, to take our sins upon himself. God desires that our views will come in line with him. The Bible should transform us. We shouldn't try to transform what the Bible says. So the next time you're reading your scroll and you come across something that you don't agree with, what are you going to do? Well, I think I'll skip that part. Oh, this is a happy verse. I'll read this one. That's one way to respond. Another way is to take out your scissors, walk over to the fireplace. But another way to respond is to fall to your knees. And let God minister to you. Lord, I read this, but my opinion tells me something else. Help me. Call out to God and he will. See, God gives us the freedom to decide. He doesn't force his way on anybody. If you're not ready for Jesus in your life, he's not going to force Jesus on you. But with that freedom comes the consequences of our decisions, doesn't it? God gives us the freedom to face those consequences. Y'all, it's all here. There's some happy things in here. There's some things in here that We all need to face. Because it's not about opinion. It's about God's revealed word to us. 
And how we respond to it is everything. And my prayer for all of us, myself included, is that we will respond to God's word with humility and not by placing ourselves over it like we know more than God. Because if we think we know more than God, guess who's the God? Let's pray.